And then the the one that she presses play, the song one of which is Don't You Forget About Me, the name of it is We Are All Going to Fucking Die. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only one you could see. If you were just watching and it always was just like my favorite moment of just like, fuck yeah, that's what you did was sit and make a playlist. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer is so relatable. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. In a shocking twist of events, which I'm sure surprised absolutely no one, we were not able to get through both parts of the finale in our last podcast. So this one will focus on the beginning part two, both written and directed by creator Terry Metalis. And now we will be ending on a prime number, episode 53. This is Beep, and you will hear me joined by Cece, Dark Amy, and Professor Aaron. Please enjoy. That takes us into part two. I do want to give a shout out to the opening credits and the music are so fucking cool. (laughs) Do you like where it starts (laughs) out with the tiny piece of the code and then you keep getting out further and further and further and you see that the code is making up the like demon and the Ouroboros like time and coal at the center. Now you know what it means and the music is all dramatic and you're just Oh yeah, how the the music starts is one thing and then it transitions into what the theme title is. Like Mm -hmm. it was so, it was almost, it was like watching a movie. It was so dramatic. That was something you could see on the big screen. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're, you just, I, I remember being like, oh shit. <laughs> like, like everything's about to go down, right? Like it totally signals like this is it. Um, so one of the things like as you go back and, and rewatch it, I think they did like a really, you know, the, the battle has these like ebbs and flows, um, right? Like it seems like it's super stacked against them. You have this moment with Cole and Ramsey where it's like, there's like, you know, the car moment and it's fun. And then like our friends are on the ropes, man. Like, and when they, when those, when those fuckers shoot Adler, I was like, oh, like, like Jones's face is like all of us. (laughs) Like, oh God. Right. Like they just fucking killed Adler. Like it's all right. Yeah. Oh. Um, and that kind of like, You had a moment like that towards the end of the original Star Wars, right? Before Han comes back, you have that moment, um, in, in, as, as Jennifer will reference the two towers, right? Before Gandalf comes, right? That, that you hit, like, we're going to fucking lose. And then the like, you know, the like twist that is going to carry the day is what comes. And it's like, I can't, you know, it seems like something that a lot of, like movies that involve battles and stuff like that try to do, but, but don't always keep that tempo up. If that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Like I can think of like Avengers Endgame, right? Like where you finally have like, it's down to the three and, and then like black, the portals open and black Panther comes back. Like they gave that moment to Deacon Max, old Jennifer in the West seven. And it's, Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I can't talk about it. 
<laughs> this is the part where I always cry when yeah. when yeah. Jennifer. Oh, like immediately. Like so every single time. Like this is even if this last time through, I hadn't watched any. I hadn't rewatched any episodes of this show for like a few months before this. And then this morning, I rewatched these two episodes, and I didn't cry at all rewatching until uh, Jennifer, like old Jennifer, showed up and or chicken egg Jennifer showed up and egg Jennifer started playing. Don't you forget about me. And Deacon showed up. And like, even knowing that it was coming, mm-hmm. I still cried. Cause it's just like, like I never in a million years expected Deacon to come back. I love him so much. It's also just sort of like, I don't know, like the, the, the redemption of having him come back to help them in this moment. I just, there are no words. Like it is I, such an amazing moment. I know. So let's break it down. <laughs> so, <laughs> Let's break it down. I know. I'm so I'm so excited. I also know, like, I know how much this moment means to like all three of you. So I'm I'm gonna like <laughs> as you guys got me through the proposal scene, like we can do this. Um <laughs> I like also can we just like I screamed Max. Like fucking they fucking <laughs> brought Max back. Never expected that. And that me is so, not at that all. is one character that I would have loved to have seen developed in the series. Yeah, she's yeah. pretty. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, I mean, and the thing is, is like when you go back, like I know that this seems ob- I, I this I know this is obvious, but like as awesome as that first part was, and as much as our like remaining team Splinter did, they would have lost. Like it was over until yeah. old Jennifer and Deacon come back, right? Like as much as we were like rooting for Cole and Ramsey and Cassie and Jennifer and Jones and all that everything that they did. If it weren't for old Jennifer and Deacon in the West Seven, they would have failed. Which and calls back to what Cassie said, though. You know, we need everyone. Yeah. And she yeah. Know what that Friends meant. and family. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody comes back. And so, Amy, I just need you because I know how much you love Lord of the Rings. When Jennifer comes back and says, I come to you at the turn of the tide, just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is... <laughs> Which is awesome because that standoff, it's funny because you get like young Jennifer and then you get old Jennifer and in anyone who's watched Lord of the Rings, like the the Gandalf that you get coming back is, is the white Gandalf and not Gandalf the gray that you thought was defeated by the Balrog. And so both for like Jennifer and then Deacon coming back, like you were dead, you were defeated and here you are in the moment in which like we were all resigned that we were probably not going to like, you know, win this war. And then here they are Gandalf the white and like this beautiful moment showing up and just being who they are and wiping them out. Yeah. I saw every, I've watched this, like I said, about 10 times and I cry every single time. And it's not like the sad cry, you know, it's like that happy sob Mm -hmm. where you're like, where at first you're like, oh my God, you're so happy that you want to like yell and you're like so filled with joy. But then your face is just doing that like ugly sob, like heaving thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that is it's what like I do. A, it's like, like a reprieve. It's like, oh, thank God I can breathe yeah. now. Yeah. You're like, oh my God. That's when you know. That's when you know, no matter what happens from then on out, well, they're going to win. We're going to yeah. win. And you have that same moment when you see Gandalf over the, you know, like, oh we're winning this bitch. Like that's, this is it. It doesn't matter what it looks like to you. We're going to win. 
Right. And you get that that exhilaration is only possible if you nail that rock bottom feeling, you know, like Cassie's actually Cassie actually calling Jones Katarina over the radio. Right. That's how that's how she's like, oh, my God, what is happening? And hearing like we have the machine. Right. And like all like you have to nail that hitting rock bottom to feel that exhilaration, right? Like when old Jennifer comes back. And the the thing also is like in that moment of rock bottom, young Jennifer in Titan is, is basically being like, please come on, please come on. Like, like, like it's almost like this prayer and the two people that she's believing in it's herself mm-hmm. and her, and I don't know if she quite gets it, but what it turns out to be is she's believing in herself and her like best friend that she lost. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is why like I always cry at this moment because there's like so many layers to what's happening with both Jennifer and Deacon and the and Jennifer and Deacon's relationship. And I think like for Jennifer to trust herself. And I think it's not just like trusting like her future self, but also I think it's like there's something really powerful about Jennifer kind of this is Jennifer coming into her coming into herself fully as a primary and not a primary in the sense like when we met her, she was primary, but she interpreted it as insanity, as mental illness, as like literally she was in a mental hospital. Like she interpreted it as a disability and everybody around her interpreted it as a disability or at least like something that made her strange. And this is Jennifer sort of recognizing her powers and her abilities and sort of like figuring out like, you know, sort of intuiting. All right. Like, here's how I I know how time works. I know how my mind works in this moment. Here's what I need. And I know there's another me out there. So she, as you know, as Jennifer, as a primary, having the special connection with time and a special understanding of it and the ways that it moves and also sort of trusting her future self, she's sort of able to do this magic, you know, where she can sort of like, it's like a prayer, but it's also kind of a moment of like, I'm fixing this moment in my memory so that later I will come back and do this, you know, way where like most of us would might forget, you know, or forget details, but she's a primary. So I feel like this is like really sort of like Jennifer becoming this like time wizard, you know, she was always meant to be, you know, um, and saving the day through her primariness, through all of the kind of like special, um, the ways that that makes her uniquely powerful. And then she also, you know, Gandalf, she became Gandalf the white, Aaron. Yeah, exactly. She became Gandalf the white. Yeah. Like all, you know, all those like sort of barriers to coming into her full power fell away. And now she is the being that she was meant to be. But I think, you know, the other layer to that, like, like Tina was pointing out is like, in order for this plan to work, she had to rely not just on herself and her own power, but also on Deacon. And her knowing Deacon deep down enough that, you know, like chicken Jennifer could go to the Deacon who doesn't, who hasn't lived through any of this yet and still reach him and convince him, you know, appeal to that Deacon that she knows is in there to come and put everything on the line to help on the, you know, on the basis of what she knows and loves about him, even if he has still sort of buried that stuff in a place where he can't access it yet. And, and I, you know, I love their, like, their, their relationship so much. That makes me really emotional. And then on top of that, you know, 
as as someone who like really really loves Deacon's character and I never in a million years thought I would love Deacon when he came in like and I never like I'm not normally the type who loves the sort of like the character who's like a super shitty asshole at the beginning and then kind of like becomes like Gorman you know like a sort of good guy at the end but like I love Deacon and I think like the other thing that I really really love about this is that you know Deacon was always he was the one who wasn't on the 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 witnesses the word of the witness, right? He wasn't on Athan's document. He wasn't a part of any prophecy. He always felt like he was afraid he was expendable. He was afraid he was the one who was kind of like not really, you know, necessary or a core part of this. And so the fact that, like you're saying, Tina, they could not have made it. They could not have succeeded without Deacon. Like Deacon was the key to making this whole thing work. None of them with all of their various kinds of specialness could have done this without Deacon. Just like makes me like, it's such like a beautiful culmination to Deacon's arc that he winds up being the absolute most important person at a key moment in the battle. Yeah. I really hate you, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) This is, I knew, I knew there would be a moment in, pod where I would be like, yeah, yeah, what Aaron said, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> co-sign. Uh, the thing also that I love that, that Jennifer is the one that has to convince, like like Aaron said, this deacon who hasn't gone through any of this yet. He's he's full on West 7, like gangster in charge of his little like criminal brood deacon. And the fact that it's, it's Jennifer that knows who Deacon is and that she can get through to him no matter what, no matter what his experiences are, because she knows deep down he's a good person is the same Jennifer, you know, that went through all those experiences when they thought Deacon had crossed over to Olivia's side and Mm -hmm. everyone was just like, fuck it. He's the enemy. And Jennifer never gave up hope ever, never, ever at any point that he did something where they're like, that proves it. He's on her side. He, you know, fucked us over again. And Jennifer's like, I don't believe it, guys. No. And then he'd give her that wink. And she'd be like, I fucking told you. So yeah. it's like they have that special connection, you know, way back to, you know, when he had that inter- interaction with her when she was a kid. Um, and, and all these kind of things that just have blossomed into this beautiful little relationship between the two of them where they see each other for who they are, no matter what is going on and the mistakes that they make. And that she was the one that knew that knew that she could convince him to come do this thing, which was yet again, like this, another selfless act to help a team that he never really felt like he was a part of. And they kind of like, they kind of would shit on him on occasion, even when he did good stuff, like they never fully kind of put bought into their trust in him. And this is like, he gets so many moments, not just Jennifer coming back and getting him and him showing up, but later on, which we'll talk about, he gets moments with the people who he loved, like he loved Cassie, he loved Cole and Ramsey and they never gave him that the respect and love back that he so craved and so wanted, but he finally gets it in this finale. And I just, I really really, emotional. I get really emotional at, at the moment when Jennifer sees him and hugs him, you know, Mm -hmm. Like, because he, he has no idea what's going on, but just like that sort of moment for her of all that he's done for her and, you know, and she's done for him and her gratitude. I mean, just like, 
you know, it's like he can't he can't really appreciate that moment when it's happening because he hasn't lived through it yet. But just like even getting that moment of like of just like the the sheer emotion, you know, of her like hugging him, the gratitude I think is really. I just he just deserves it, and I'm so happy he yeah. got it. Because yeah. he just it's he just wanted to be recognized. You yeah. know, he just wanted to be recognized by them in some way. And then like those little moments of gratitude, just those little tiny moments of gratitude meant so much to him. What I think is really interesting about um Deacon, you know, Deacon's arc, but 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 what we learn. We learn something about him here. Um, so this deacon, and, and this is a point of confusion for a, a lot of fans, like even this week, um, as to like when when is this deacon in terms of deacon story, right? And so like Deacon Ramsey and Cole, they were together like from 2032 to 2035. They obviously in Atari had that whole falling out over, you know, Deacon asking Cole to kill his brother um, and then them leaving, right? This Deacon, because folks were, I'm just repeating all this because folks were confused about this. Um, he has not yet gone to um, uh, Raritan to attack it in Atari in 2043. So this is a deacon that is coming face to face with Cole and Ramsey who he hasn't seen for years. And, you know, Cole is the, uh, you know, the, the pseudo brother, right. That he wanted to sort of take under his wing to replace the brother that he lost. And this deacon doesn't choose like retribution in this moment, like, right. He could have dropped them, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, he yeah. did his part, right. This Deacon always, Deacon always had it in him to, to rise to the occasion. Um, I mean, and that's not to say that his character arc isn't, isn't beautiful and a product of his experiences with team splinter. Right. Of course it is. But there's also something that that whole question about like, whether or not he's a good man and nature versus nurture and his father and all of it, like even, even this deacon back in 2043, when the chips were down, he made the choice to believe Jennifer and to help and to like help save the world. Right. And like, I, mm -hmm. I just, I find that really, um, you know, as we were talking about sort of that, the Ramsey and Cole before, and like he always, deacon always had this, in him. Um, and it's just sort of like what circumstances called, called to him in, in a given moment, if that makes sense. Like, I just find it incredibly moving that it is this deacon, the deacon in 2043, who chooses to fight alongside Ramsey and Cole. And I love the fact that, that this Ramsey and Cole, who had a longer history with deacon, know how they can like get this this particular deacon on their side when they show him their their branding for mm -hmm. the West Seven, mm -hmm. and that's the moment in which Deacon realizes like that they're my brothers and we're ride or die and we're gonna we're gonna do this till the end. So we're gonna save the world and we're mm -hmm. gonna do it together. Right. And if you um, think about I, it, I mean, Deacon is the one who taught them how to fight, right? So like, so much of the reason that they have survived as long as they have and been able to do what they've done is because Deacon taught them. Yeah, I mean they were, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean they were I mean if you caught the detail that um the reason why they knew how to rush tightness cuz they were like fucking rushing quarantine zones which hits a little close to home right now during yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Jesus Cole and Ramsey like put on your damn mask and follow the rules. 
But, Social but, yeah. distancing, <laughs> asshole. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, but here's here's the thing. All of this is moving and thematically beautiful. And, and we cheer Deacon's return, right? But the thing, like, all of this, right? But the thing that makes this moment the fucking epic moment that it is, is the, like, surgical precision of making this that kind of, like we were talking about, Gandalf coming over the hill, right? Han Solo flying in on the Millennium Falcon as backup just when, like, the chips were down and you thought Luke was about to, like, like right? It's, it's executing that moment to make it something epic. And the whole Jennifer basically acting like she's on a radio station to again fuck with Olivia. It it's like like the dulcet tones, the sleepy dulcet tones of Olivia Kirshner, longtime listener, first time witness with a face for radio and a voice for NPR. Like that is how, <laughs> I, 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 I can't help but like I like fucking typed it out because it is like so like again, like the humor that they're putting in, but the way that they set this up as this like musical moment that is like a, a, a song from the fucking breakfast club in the middle of the world ending. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yet you find yourself not only, of course, as we've talked about so many times, that song, what that means to Deacon, but also again, like t- I've had the time of my life. Don't you forget about me. We did forget about Deacon who was alive in 2043, right? Everybody yeah. did. Yeah. And he wasn't yeah. on the word of the witness. So again, it's like this totally like surprising musical cue in the middle of like a battle about the end of the world. And yet again, the lyrics like totally make sense. I hate um, the writers so And you bad. gotta love the meta. <laughs> <laughs> you have to love right? the meta and, of Cold's face. Like just like, oh hell. <laughs> Here yeah, no, like everybody's reaction is so hilarious. Like Olivia's like, what the fuck? And Cole is like, oh, are you all right. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me okay here we Seriously? go Seriously, <laughs> there is i don't know like whoever like i i don't know if it was drew nichols but whoever edited in that like cold belly laugh at jennifer doing her fucking bullshit over the loudspeaker at titan like i love it so much that he like appreciates her crazy right now <laughs> like right <laughs> but can we like also, just give a shout out to because one of the reasons I mean, we've named a whole bunch why that moment is awesome, but Todd Stashwick's fucking swagger <laughs> as he comes through with the cigar. And then when he's done shooting up the initial people, he keeps walking. And then there's one other guy moving, and he just casually shoots that guy <laughs> and then like keeps walking. It's like one of those I mean, things that, like, I I have a lot of guilt about finding that hot because, like, he's literally shooting a guy who's already dying. But like, it's super it's hot. hot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fictionary, and it's okay. It's totally it's okay. That's a totally. Um, the thing I love about it for Todd, though, being how he's such a huge, huge, huge Star Wars fan, is like he gets to have his total Han Solo moment. Like that oh, yeah, is like yeah. epically Han Solo, the swagger, the just shooting some guy, whatever. Like, so he was like, so you could see it in his face. It was like half Deacon, half Todd, just having the fucking mm-hmm. time of their life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have, um, this is, and, and it's, this is the last rabbit hole that is ever going to be. 
Um, <laughs> I paused and and like zoomed in on Jennifer's iPod, and I <laughs> I just need everyone to know the names of her playlists because they are like here we go audiobooks illustrated like, <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense that's, and that's number one so there you that's go that's number one i'm not gonna Got be able that. to get through this pop songs german covers only red <laughs> forest i mean red forest this <laughs> No, no, no. I fucking paused it and typed all this shit out and I'm going to okay, read it. Red, for- Red Forest Relaxation Tapes. Therapy Sessions, Volume 1. <laughs> <laughs> my personal favorite. This is my favorite. Songs that Jones would hate, Play for Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Time Jesus. Jennifer, if there ever was Jennifer. Right. Yep. <laughs> Time Jesus Christ Superstar Musical. (laughs) (laughs) Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Climb the Steps, Feel the Burn. (laughs) That's her workout music. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Hyena's Gone Wild, Brass Monkey. You you missed Light My Primary Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Light My Primary Fire. (laughs) Um, This is what the you got to stop and think about it for a minute before you're like, oh, my God, old Jennifer suggestions. <laughs> it's like she and old Jennifer sat down one time and old Jennifer was like, oh, you got to listen to this and this and this. <laughs> oh, my God. Thelma and Louise road trip, which I hope is sort of her like. Cassie. I hope. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And then there's it's like, of course, this show has an Easter egg. In the name of one of her playlists on her iPad, I mean iPod, is and I'm, I'm going to butcher the German, and I apologize to our German listeners. Hilton Sick Fuhr Captain Kirk, which is a line from the original German version of 99 Red Balloons. Hilton Sick Fuhr Captain Kirk. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, and it's in the As song a for Captain Kirk. I assume. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And that, and that, and that is important. <laughs> Context is super important. That's like the the fighter jets that are imagining that they're Captain Kirk, the ones that are about to start the apocalypse in that song. And then the the one that she presses play, the song one of which is "Don't You Forget About Me." The name of it is, we are all going to fucking die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the only one you could see. If you were just watching and it always was just like my favorite moment of just like, fuck yeah, that's what you did was sit and make a playlist. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer is so relatable. Yeah, my, fa- my favorite thing about the songs that Jones would hate is like, I currently have a playlist that I've been making calling songs that CC would hate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. she hates, like 90s rock music and so i'm making one that's like all 90s rock music and that's the name of it i don't hate all 90s rock music <laughs> i just don't have as fond a place in my heart for seattle grunge as well <laughs> the name of my playlist says otherwise so <laughs> yeah, but just to put in parentheses play for cc because that's like the best part of it play for well Joe, i'm going like- to now 
Oh man. Um, so, you know, uh, we could talk about this moment forever because it's like one of television's greatest moments, but we still have half the finale to go, you to go through. Um, we have the Cassie, Cassie and Olivia showdown. Um, and I know that I've said this before, but I, I can't tell you how, th- not only is it like a fucking long time coming um, for Cassie to get to just beat the shit out of Olivia, um, but also that the like culminating apex showdown of, of the villain and the hero is between, it's between two women. <laughs> and like, we just don't get to see that a lot. Like it's, and, and the fight is like, really fucking brutal like it's really painful to watch they're like uh like you know strangling each other and stabbing each other and like the like you know cassie's gonna like list all the reasons why olivia deserves every single punch right like oh do you guys have any thoughts about their their uh epic showdown i really love the blood squirting (laughs) (laughs) it's so good (laughs) When yeah. any time I watch any fights like this, I'm such a dork. I always like I, I get very worried. Like first of all, I'm always just like there's there's the stupid like pedantic part of me that is like you know Jennifer's knocked out by like one getting shoved over once and then Cassie keeps going. But also I get very <laughs> I get very worried. I hate that so much. Where it's like it is not that easy to be unconscious, you guys. It is not. <laughs> I like I. I to think that Jennifer was like, you know what? I'm bad at fighting. I'm just gonna like, yeah. just gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take out. I'm gonna take out. I'm just gonna get in the way, so I'm gonna lie here and make her forget that I'm in the equation. Um, <laughs> but also, I get very concerned about concussions and like, yes. like, you know, like Cassie's like a concussed pretty early on, probably, and then she keeps getting punched. Like, girls gonna have CTE. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Her concussion's gonna get reset. She's got like That's five true. years. Yeah. 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 Poor, poor Cassie. Um <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a really great again, like in the midst of this battle, they're setting up thematically. Like Olivia's like, you know, as they're fighting, Olivia's like, come to think of it. I don't really have a use for the red forest, but you totally do. <laughs> and it's like, oh fuck. Like on you know, all of the like breadcrumbs leading up to the balcony moment. And I love it. Was it Joe from Maybe Geek Again who was like the Ghostbusters, like don't cross the streams? <laughs> like when she throws <laughs> Olivia into the beam. Um, it's just it was a great way for a villain to go out. And I just so appreciate that it was Cassie who got to. I also think like, speaking of Ghostbusters, when I was rewatching this time, all the, the sort of like Cassie out on this kind of like quasi Gothic balcony with the sort of rubble falling down around her has like big Zool as stay puffed marshmallow man, Ghostbusters (laughs) climax (laughs) energy. It does. (laughs) Especially when, like, when Cole is, like, pulling away the rocks to try to get to Cassie, I was like, oh, this reminds me of Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's, like, there's a really interesting, you know, I think in addition to, like, very, you know, clearly kind of, like, setting up for Cassie's hesitation on the balcony by, like, just sort of, like, you know, every punch comes with a reminder of what you're giving up by winning. I think it's, like, it's so interesting as as a glimpse into 
<laughs> Olivia's mind, like she's so fascinating as a villain because like she's like one of the, I feel like like truly, really nihilistic villains because she's kind of reminding you here, like did, does Olivia even have a perfect moment that she would live in? She's not even fighting for anything. She just wants to win. Exactly. She just wants, she just wants the red forest. She just wants, she just wants it to happen because it's the only thing that has, that has ever been her goal that has ever had any, that has ever been her purpose. It was what she was created for. Like there is no other anything for her, but even that goal is meaningless. It's empty. And it's circular because the only reason she even wants it is because the witness promised it. And then she was like, oh, I'm the witness. So I guess this is what I'm doing. Like, right. Yeah. She doesn't care at all. Like she herself is this sort of loop with a hole in the middle, you know? And it's like so fascinating. And it's like, I do feel like it's sort of thematically, it's so perfect. Um. You know, even to kind of like to have that moment of, of you know, the beam going through her and her, the reveal that she is the the body they found on the mountain. Like she is as much as Cole, you know, like Cole thinks that he is the ultimate beginning and the end, but she is also the beginning and the end. But like, it's so interesting that like for Cole, you know, like there's a beginning and the end to all this and all we're ever going to have is what's in between. And for Cole, you know, he's an Ouroboros, but that's, he's got like the gooey, creamy, delicious center of like friends and family. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That metaphor, go with it. You know, like he, like he filled up that, that space between the beginning and the end. And, and Olivia is also an Ouroboros, you know, she's also the snake mm-hmm. eating its own tail, but she is totally empty. Like in the center yep. of that Ouroboros is a black hole. Yep. And that's what like, makes her like the true demon, you know, versus Cole. Yeah. This might be the vodka talking, but Aaron's analogy has me really hungry for donuts. And then I'm like, in my mind, yeah. I'm like, Olivia is like this plain cake donut with no frosting. <laughs> it's just blackness. And over here, Cole is like this yummy cream filled donut, like with the chocolate covering that has like nice <laughs> rainbow sprinkles. And it makes me feel really good. We can all relate to Cassie because we've all had that moment when we're eating that delicious you know, cream filled chocolate glazed donut where we never want that donut to be gone. We want to keep <laughs> eating this donut forever. But like, of course the problem is like that ha- that happens about halfway through the donut. And then by the time you finish it, you feel a little bit sick and you're like, I don't want to eat another donut for at least like a month. <laughs> and that is a convincing argument against the red forest, right. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the donut, we're going to call that the donut rebuttal. To the red forest. <laughs> Um, oh my God. (laughs) Um, that, that takes us to, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this, the track is called Cassie's Choice, that balcony scene, the music and the sequence of her being like, I'm sorry. And then Cole closing his eyes and then running through that, that, you know, that hallway at Titan that so many, so many things have gone down over, um, the last couple seasons. Um, it's one of my most favorite sequences in the whole show. Um, and it also is like, it's amazing to me that in a finale as like the stakes are epic, there's a battle going all around. Right. And yet this portion of it is like firmly focused on two people. Um, 
and it's like you know it's the two people that we started the the journey with and you know th- the fact that the relationship that we is like the main love story of the show that we are so invested in is now the like painful either obstacle or casualty to winning like this I I love how it's constructed. I love how it's just firmly focused on these two people talking to one another. Um, I love that it's a conversation that in one form or another has been going on between them since season two. Um, You know, like Cassie said in Lullaby, it's the losing that haunts us. And, And it was always Cole arguing like, no, but if this is all I've got, then like, let's go for it. Right. And, and those two perspectives, they are, crashing together in this scene and literally like the universe is on the line. And I just love the, like the way that the stakes are so huge and yet can be brought down to two people talking. Um, and I, I, I don't even like the words are so beautiful and like Aaron Stanford's performance of that monologue. Like I feel like even trying to repeat the lines, I feel like I would like butcher them, but it's a really uh, like, I think that this is like a hard thing to execute to like have the words really meet this moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, and they do it's like, and, and it, and also like, I don't know about you guys, but I had this very meta feeling the first time I was watching it that, you know, we can have it all until it means nothing, you know, and it doesn't end and give us an ending. It also felt like the show, I, I, I don't know if they intended it this way or not, but it felt like the show telling the audience, like, I know you're sad that this is the end, but like, that's okay. And it it's honestly, time. it's time. Yeah. And in a meta way, this ending, the fact that it had this finite ending, the fact that they knew that this ending was coming, the fact that like they knocked it out of the park is like, what does make all of it so beautiful? Do you know what I mean? So like, I just feel like there's like the level of what's going on between these two characters, the the thematic work it's doing about why things that go on forever are like, even if that sounds good, it would like render everything that you love meaningless. And that's a really hard thing to accept when like in the real world, that means like things ending often mean, you know, like people dying, right? Like I, I get why Cassie is so torn in this moment. It's interesting because um, uh, The Good Place did a similar thing with their with their finale. You know, there's sort of the, the conclusion of the series was that, you know, even like literally heaven has to end. You know, heaven is the good place winds up being kind of like accidental torture or, or, or it's sort of like, like they get to the good place and the people who have been there forever have sort of become shadows of their former selves and everything has lost meaning and impact because they've been there forever. And what they figure out is that even like the good place, even heaven is only heaven if there is an ending to it. And so, you know, I guess like accidental giant spoilers, spoilers for the good place, but you know, so, so what happens is they kind of figure out like, there has to come a point where the sort of souls or whatever they are in the good place can choose, can, can choose, can decide that they're, they're sort of done with existing and choose to walk through this gate and basically become atoms. And, um, and in the show, Chidi, 
you know, there's a, there's like a very, very poignant sort of um, arc where Chidi decides that he's done before Eleanor and Eleanor is sort of struggling with letting him go. And, and Chidi talks about it in terms of um, Buddhist philosophy and the idea that, you know, like of the sort of the waves of the ocean that they move in and out and they aren't permanent, but they are eternal. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things like when I was watching the, the finale of the good place and watching this, like that really makes sense to me, you know, like watching that I was thought it was really touching. And I thought, I thought the fact that the characters got to choose their ending was like really lovely closure, you know, that they kind of like got to do everything that they wanted to do. And then could, could choose the moment where they're like, I am, I am totally fulfilled, you know, in every way that I need to be. And I'm, and I've decided that I'm done with conscious existence or whatever. Um, And same with this, you know, it makes sense to me, like what, what Cole is saying to Cassie is very intuitive to me that, if you live forever, I mean, even what Cassie's sort of talking about, like we had, we could, we could have a son, we could raise a son. It's like, if you are forever in a perfect moment, you actually can't raise a family. That's the thing you can't do. If there is no time, if it's an eternal now, you actually can't have a family live a life. Like that's the thing, like you can just exist, but none of those, none of those things that make a life can possibly happen. And to me, that sounds horrifying. Right. But like, it is interesting. I, you know, like, I remember after the Good Place finale, reading a bunch of stuff about like a lot of people were really unhappy with that finale, were really, really viscerally upset by the idea that that the cessation of existence gives existence meaning and that one would choose to stop existing. And this was supposed to be the happy ending. Um, and like even I remember reading an interview with the two philosophers who were the um advisors to uh, Mike Schur on The Good Place. And one of them, you know, is sort of believes like, they're both moral philosophers. And one of them says like, yeah, you know, in order for things to have meaning, they have to end. So like an eternal afterlife or whatever would actually not be a good thing or, or you know, eternal life would actually wind up, wind up being sort of hell. But the other philosopher disagrees. So there's like genuine disagreement. Um, just as like, it, you know, as a kind of like moment to say like, I think all of us here talking about this right now are very much sort of like intuitively feel like, yes, like what, what Cole is saying makes sense. And, and this is the only way that things can have meaning. And I, and I really, I don't understand how you could live forever in a moment. You can, it's like, that is not a replacement for having a life with somebody, you know, like for Cassie, it's like, that doesn't actually give you what you want. Um, but I don't know. It's like interesting to me that evidently this is not like an, an automatically like intuitively true thing. You know, there are people for whom, that is like deeply intuitively untrue. Yeah, I, I think this has always been, <clears throat> and you know, I love that we're ending up in this place because we have we have debated this many, many times. Um, but talking about it on this level, you know, we don't we don't have like all of us here. We don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, right. like we will all die. And so I think while I think it is true that things ending give it meaning and that is like there's really no other way that I think our brains can even like that's just that's the central part of being a human being, right? Is mortality, right? And that's what like you know humans have been struggling with through art and and science and everything for like centuries. Um but but I don't. I, I think t- to 
to quickly dismiss it and say, <laughs> and to say, I absolutely would not choose that. And, and that absolutely doesn't make sense. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think you're being like, is everybody really being honest with themselves? Like if you were standing on that balcony and your choice was like your, the love of your life was going to be erased in, I don't know, 40 minutes, um, or you could live forever with him. And I mean, isn't this like the ultimate philosophical argument of, of why people choose religion and choose faith? Um, because we all know the reality, the, the biological reality is, is, is we were born, we live, and then our bodies give out and we die. And one of the reasons why so many people, um, I don't want to use the wrong words for this when we talk about religion, but like cling to a faith of some sort of an afterlife is because people, mortality scares people and they still want to continue like believing that there's this afterlife, there's more, like it doesn't end because thinking of something having this finite ending sometimes doesn't bring comfort to people. Like it, it, it it's, it's more terrifying because it is a mystery. It is, it, it stops, it ends. And that makes people feel like that life has no meaning when, when you can point to this line and be like, here's an end. And, and also a fear of being forgotten, which I think they tie into 12 monkeys a lot when they say, you know, not only will Cole be erased, but it's, he will be completely erased from everyone's, you know, memory of him because he will not have existed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always been the terrifying thing when it comes to, you know, where, where Aaron was talking about the good place and stuff like that, thinking, yeah, you just become atoms and just be sprinkled on the universe and exist in a plane that's completely different. People still want to cling on to this idea of, of being with those that you love. And if it's not in life because our bodies die beyond still continuing this life of forever of being with the souls that we've like latched onto in our lives. So I think the question in 12 monkeys is like the eternal philosophical question of of believing in an afterlife or not in a weird sort of way. Yeah. I mean, part of the, you know, the way that they throw a wrench into it, you know, this, for example, this is not a sci-fi story where you have a choice that like, for example, your consciousness could go on in another form. Right. Like, or, or like literally like a, like a story, like, like humans or agents of shield, right. Where like you have a consciousness and you can put it into another body or like, um, altered carbon. Right. And like, would you choose to continue, um, that existence, um, and go on and on and on if there was a way that technology could figure out a way to outlast your body. Right. In yeah. this, in this case, what's complicated about it is that, Cassie, in making that choice, isn't just making that choice for herself. She's making that mm. choice for the entire universe. Right. You know? And so that that is, I mean, you. I think you could also say that that is knowing Cassandra Rayleigh, one of the main reasons why she would never, like, ultimately she did stop it and she didn't choose the Red Force for everybody else. Like, that's actually what makes it selfish. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes. right. So, yes. There's many yes. layers of moral dilemma to this scenario that is what our four seasons worth of television have come down to. It's not only what gives existence meaning, it's also this choice of, of agency. And would you make that choice for the entire 
universe, which mm-hmm. is uh, um, some pretty fucking deep stuff. <laughs> like, right? like on top of like all of the time travel loops and all of the things they got right and all of the character arcs and all of the things we're talking about. Like the reason why I think even the evidence, I mean, I think I know the four of us agree and we're not going to have that like full on debate again. But even though I think on face value, the evidence is um, well more than a preponderance of the evidence is in favor that Ka- they are not in the red forest at the end. And Cassie did stop the countdown. I think the reason why people keep talking about it isn't necessarily because that is really in dispute. It's rather that the ideas underlying that conflict really get at something that is like, uh, like really something that maybe not all of us like have answers to. And that's why people like to talk about it. If that makes sense. Like they really struck at some central existential questions. Well, I think, I think it becomes personal. I think like the people, you know, whether you choose uh, to decide that Cassie didn't stop the countdown there in the red forest or she did and they're not, I think doesn't come from, what the story has told us about Cassie and the whole journey. I think people come to whatever choice that they make and, and want to talk about it and argue about it because it's a personal thing because they Mm -hmm. self insert in that moment and think about what it is that they would do if they were Cassie or what it is that they would desire to want in that moment. And I think that's, what's so great about that moment of Cassie standing there and the beautiful and the music just, it, totally enhances the performances and the moment and stuff like that. Just like music in the leftovers does. It's like you're, you're having a moment where this is already emotional and there's like these philosophical choices that are being made and then the music starts and then you're like, well, fuck, (laughs) you know, and I'm in it too. And, and so everyone, they, it puts you where you're the one standing there in front of the countdown, which any good story does. Like we always talk about, you know, characters who are self inserts, but that's a good thing. Like you want to have the audience be so into what is going on that they can easily put themselves in the position of that character and then ponder the choice and not just ponder it through the eyes of what Cassie's going to decide, but what it means to you um, as, as a human question. And I think that's why that like really resonates and people have such like strong opinions about it because it comes from a really personal position, a really personal place. Yeah. About a really difficult, about one of the most difficult parts of being a human being, which is facing that we all die, yeah. <laughs> you know, mortality. So, yeah. Um, man, guys, none of us here have philosophy degrees, by the way. <laughs> listeners. <laughs> nope. Not nope. even close. Nope. <laughs> Had to take it freshman year of college. <laughs> and that's it. But um, have to read it sometimes for my job. <laughs> Generally find philosophy somewhere between infuriating and hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> really leaning toward the infuriating part, though. <laughs> Depends on the philosopher. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Totally true. Um, I, the, the other, like, just to close this before, um, I, the music and the staging of after Cassie and Cole have kind of found each other through the rubble when Jennifer regains her consciousness and the, the lighting, like the shafts of light 
um, through Titan and that like very beca- because it's it's like a heroic moment, but it's also bittersweet when Cole and Cassie come out into the light and the music is kind of swelling, you know, and, and obviously they've won, but we have just been hit in the face with like the cost, right? And then like Cole takes the radio out and is like Titan is ours. It's just fucking like yes. <laughs> like you need <laughs> moments like that after like such a like you know, everything that we have just gone through as an audience. And it's just like, it's a badass moment for uh, our battle couple casserole. I love it. Um, are you guys, are you guys ready to take the um, soul destroying train through all of the goodbyes? Uh, ready as hell ever. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to start with the one that is really funny and so unbelievably clever first. And that is Oliv- Olivia's corpse in, 18, in 894. <laughs> And here is the thing that I didn't really focus on until this last time that I rewatched it. Um, you know, obviously it's like so clever that she was the gin and the sort she's the other gin and she was the source of the virus and all of that. The song that's playing is Mozart's Ave Verum Corpus, which <laughs> the translation is Hail True Body. <laughs> which I just love so much. And and the first we heard that song back in season one in the 1980s episode in Tokyo, Shonen, when Leland Goines purchased Olivia in a box. And um also like that was the episode, like when we heard that song, that's when Ramsey was with Olivia in the 12 Monkeys Mansion, and and they had that kind of religious ceremony with the paradox. Um, so I just love that they like brought back this musical cue in an episode that was focused on the corpse and was also so focused on Olivia. And we just like, didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle to put it, to to put it together. Um, do you guys have any sort of any closing thoughts on the, um, sad and also like just the idea of Olivia being like, she was always the thing in the box. (laughs) And she I my closing thought for this is I love how nerdy you are about this and the research that you do. You <laughs> must have been very good at research as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy. My my only comment <laughs> is that donuts also come in boxes, so my analogy still works. <laughs> <laughs> my comment stands. <laughs> Um, I would say that the only thing I think about this is I had totally forgotten about the corpse to this point. So this was just like, oh, wow, cool. They answered that question. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's so funny because it was like such such a point of speculation in season one. And and the journey just was like so insane since then. You're like, oh, yeah. Um, It's kind of just like in the last episode, like in, you know, one minute more. It's like, oh, yeah, this show's about a plague. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) 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 all right guys i'm just gonna say deacon cassie and old jennifer in the hallway go i well i mean like i said a little while ago we touched on this this scene always gets me i just you know and it's like so like i kind of love it that it's simultaneously so poignant and so awkward 
You know, because like Deacon has no idea what the fuck is going on. He's just sort of like, you're the lady from TV. Oh, now yeah. she's hugging me and telling me I'm a good man. What is happening? <laughs> and he's kind of like, oh, she's kind of hot. Look on his face. Yeah. He's like, yeah, and he's like, still got it. Like, she's just. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. And I, I love the little, like, it makes me so happy to watch you know, to like get to see old Jennifer and Deacon walk off into the sunset. Yes. Yes. That was so very like Casablanca to me. Um, yes. oh, that, that scene yeah. reminded me of that so much. Um, just the beginning you know, of a beautiful friendship. friendship. Yeah, the beginning of a beautiful friendship oh, and walking that's, off. That's such a good uh, The And uh, there's something to me. I, unlike Aaron, I love a character who starts off as an asshole and we find out he has a heart of gold. Like that is my catnip as a character. So I love Deacon immediately. I knew immediately like, oh, that guy's going to end up like being good or doing something good for them. And so the moment, knowing a lot of like Deacon's character arc is this, being kind of this outsider and not only feeling alienated from the main characters and stuff like that, but realizing his childhood and and feeling alienated from his father in a sense because of the abuse and all of that. And then feeling, having those moments of feeling like I'm turning into my father that it, so to have his arc of him trying to find his worth in this world, in this apocalypse to have this moment where to him a complete stranger is coming up and and giving him grace and hugging him and saying you're a good man and and telling him in a sense that he is worthy and and knowing that you know his his journey after that it just it gets me every time anytime there's a character you see go through this I'm an asshole I'm a murdering asshole that culminates to him finding his worth and someone validating his worth to him in just a simple phrase, in a simple moment of you're a good man, that just, that gets me every time I sob, every time. Yeah. And the thing is, Cassie, when he's like, I know you from TV, if you think back to season two, you know, Deacon confided in her, you know, when he was like this scared child in horrible circumstances at home in the middle of a pandemic, her seeing her on TV, like she was like his rock, right? And he was probably an adolescent and, you know, it's Cassie. He probably, you know, he also had a crush on her, right? Like, I mean, if you think yeah. about it, Cassie's like, he, she's like the super hot Dr. Fauci of like the 12 monkeys, like coronavirus pandemic. But like, she was a voice uh, going back to his childhood. And so even though it's casual for him in that moment, oh, you're that, you're that doctor from TV. Cassie knows that 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 there's a lot more depth to that in terms of what she meant to him. Even at that point, you know what I mean. Like even though they don't have a personal relationship at that point, yeah. she was that voice of calm, and it's gonna we're gonna get through this for him when he was a child. And like it, if you think back to those scenes in Enemy when he was alone in Titan grappling with this central struggle of whether or not he's a good man or whether he's his father for those to be the words that Cassie says to him. Like, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just such 
beautiful writing and it's like such a meaningful way for that character to kind of walk off into the sunset, you know? Um, Tina? Yeah. You see, my love, I get to make a Buffy reference to you and you'll understand it. Oh my God, this is amazing. This is is monumental. Like, this is, I'm like, oh no, I know. Oh, I find the Kristen Belby, and like, I've been waiting my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you're going to say. This is, yeah, you just actually had watched this episode and the culmination of, you know, Spike from Buffy Mm -hmm. um, in season seven. Like, he's ensouled and as a soul, as a vampire, and coming to grips with this man coming to a reckoning for what he did in his past life. And he has a moment where he's in chains and his past is coming to haunt him like Deacon's father when he's chained, basically trying to discover his worth and knowing that there is this uh, beautiful blonde (laughs) who who believes that he's this good man and holding on to that and that worth that that someone out there. There is someone out there through all the shit that I do and stuff like that, that still believes in me, that still believes that I'm worthy. And that's the one thing that keeps me going and can keep me hanging on when I don't believe in myself. There's someone out there that sees the good in me. So boom, there you go, Tina. I worked in a Buffy reference. (laughs) You know it. (laughs) My favorite. I know. So, and the thing is, and it's so funny because so long ago you guys were like, Deacon is the spike of 12 monkeys and he Mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other, I wanted to kind of think about, and and I know that time is going to reset and, and thinking about what these characters, all the characters that are saying goodbye, what they have to go and do, you know, how much this particular character is, this version of it is going to have to go and do before time resets, who knows? But think about what that means for Deacon going forward and all of the things that he and Jennifer are going to have to do being told that, right? Like we watched this version of the story and we watched him struggle with who he was and whether or not he was like the central question of a good man. And, you know, now he's carrying this victory forward with him and the doctor that he grew up watching on TV, who he doesn't quite get it, but he knows that she knows him, told him that. It's like really moving. It's also important to uh, acknowledge the moment of levity, though, between him and old Jennifer, because they're just always going to have it. She's like, so say you shoot me. And he's like, I'm sorry. And she's like, you shoot me. And he says, no, I'm apologizing. And she's like, no, I forgive you. Like, You're like, so them. Yes. This is totally normal. This is fine. Yeah. Well, I shoot you. It's okay. You know, we'll get to that later. Right. Can you imagine him having to do that when he knows, like, uh, right. Acting I, I, through that and shooting his best friend, like, oh, brutal. I know. And and I know, you know, I, I don't, it's, it's, it breaks my brain a little bit and I don't want to get a flood of like, well, that's not actually how it would work on this, in this next cycle, like comments, but like, just like thematically and like, just thinking about what these characters have to do, you know, like everything that old Jennifer and Deacon have to go out and do knowing that they've won, um, and everything that they've experienced, right? Like think about all of those old Jennifer scenes earlier in the show. Um, and that she yeah, has to go she's done none of that yet. Yeah. Um, I think that takes us to the Ramsey goodbye. 
Um, and I went back and I watched, um, I watched that scene in Brothers. And it's really interesting when you kind of take what Cole says um, and then what Ramsey says to him as he's dying and kind of as an asymmetrical conversation. Um, and, you know, obviously like Ramsey as Cole's conscience, I mean, Cole called Ramsey his conscience after he died in season three and earlier in season four, when he got to see him again, you know, like Cole was trying to talk to him about like, how do I know what, how do I know what the right thing to do is? So it's like, so for him to be asking his, basically his big brother after the end of this battle, we did the right thing though, didn't we? In the end, like, like they just saved the world and he has to, he knows he has to erase himself and he's like still looking at his big brother and asking him that. It's like kind of makes me choke up. Um, really? Cause I don't think we could tell. <laughs> <laughs> but when Ramsey goes back, like, and I love the, like the, the control that Ramsey has in that moment. Like he's going back to face his death and he still is acting like Cole's big brother because he's not like, he's like, I'm going to save it for the Cole that needs it. Like still acting like a big brother, even as he's saying goodbye. And like, he's, as far as he knows, he will, even if it's reset, he's never going to see Cole. Like he thinks he will never see Cole again. And he won't even like as an adult, as we talked about, but so Cole asks, um, we did the right thing. Didn't we? In the end, when Ramsey is dying in brothers, his answer back to Cole is, we always tr- try to do the right thing. We just end up doing it the wrong way. Don't undo this. Promise me. You're on your own, brother. See you soon. And there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> if you think about that Ramsey leaving this moment and saying that to Cole. I appreciate that they did not load another goodbye onto us <laughs> as much as that one had already been. Um, I mean, obviously their moment was emotional, but I'm <laughs> kind of glad we didn't hear all that. Although again. I will say that like, I, every single time I rewatch this episode and they have that shot of like sort of very, you know, like a, a drone or a, or a plane shot from very far away of the forest. And you just hear the sound of Ramsey splintering in and then you hear the gunshot. Yep. Yep. Always kills me. Yep. Always yep. gets me. And then if you go back and watch Brothers, and I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole because we, we covered this a lot in our Brothers podcast, but watching the scene when his back is turned and knowing that it is this Ramsey and that he is facing it, having reconciled with his brother, having saved the world with his brother. And that he slowed down and like just was like, okay, shoot me. I mean, and the, and the the humor of it, of course, is in this goodbye. He jokes that with his luck, Cole will miss, and and Cole does kind of miss. He shoots him in the shoulder first, <laughs> then he has to get back up and keep walking. You're like, oh, but it is really like, I, you know, it, it is this puzzle piece, and it's not just that it is um, a cool time travel, like the puzzle all falls back into place. It's that. You can take this kind of asymmetrical conversation about trying to do the right thing, about the asymmetry of their reconciliation, all of that that is built into it that I think is just why this TV show is like on another level. Because it's not, it's not just a cool trick that, that 
you know, we knew we didn't know like the missing page. That is cool. But it's all that that adds to these characters and sort of the themes that the show's exploring. It is kind of interesting that he says, don't undo this, you know, because at the time, like when you first, in Brothers, when you first watched that, it feels very much like, you know, like Ramsey's just like tired. He's just done. He's done. Yeah. He's yeah done. He's just, he's done. And I think he is. But now there's also that level of Ramsey being like, like knowing. Yeah. He's kind of knowing the coal he just left. You know, like it, there's also like a level of like, he's got to protect the causality that got them there. Right. Exactly. Because he knows he would like without yeah. him telling that Cole would like immediately be like, oh, my God, I screwed up and go back and undo it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, he's Jones is like he's she explained it to all of them. You got to go back and you got to you got to go back to your point of origin and you got to protect the timeline or this will never have happened. Um, yeah. yeah. Like there's I mean, you could. I mean, that scene in Brothers, there's like layers of onion to it. And if if people haven't listened to that podcast, we, we went in deep um, discussing all of them. But, you know, even the you're on your own brother, that had one meaning in Brothers that has another meaning now. Yeah. Because he has to erase himself. Like, yeah. It's just- and he's on his own in the end, you know, like at, at the very, very end, even Jones is dead. Right. He has to do it all alone. Uh, all right. As, <laughs> as we march through to the next goodbye, young Jennifer's goodbye. Tell me your feelings, guys. This is I like, love again, just like the generous shit that there is. Like, <laughs> yes. It's like, I love that it's, you know, that, that it's, it's so in character that it's a little bit goofy. It's a little bit, you know, like she's, she can never just like confront the moment straight, which I compl- like, I relate. <laughs> Respect, respect. <laughs> yeah, um, and and of course, like she's the one who has to uh, live the longest. Like her loop, her sort of like yeah. Everybody else, like far. Cassie, gets a few years. Deacon has a few years. You know, like everybody else is like a few years. She has like a lifetime. She's yeah. like decades that she has to go back through and do. And plus, she's you know primary, so like she's got this sort of different relationship to time and and so forth so like the the burden on her is in many ways so much heavier for this kind of like going back through the loop thing than it is for anybody else um but she just plays it off in a very jennifer way yeah i also my mind went back um you know when to guardians um, in season three where she, you know, was her profession was being an actress. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, really hard conversation she had with Cole where Cole like didn't applaud for her. Right. Like, and, and then you get the redo at the end where he does. And so this moment where Jennifer is standing before Jones and Cole and Cassie, and she's doing her, you know, the actress like farewell, and they're all clapping for her. I, I don't know. My mind went back to that moment in Guardian and just like how far they've all come and how much they appreciate her and Jennifer expressing, you know, in ways that we've never really heard Jones articulate how grateful she is for Jennifer's role in raising Hannah. Right. And like who mm-hmm. Hannah, you know, uh, who Hannah turned out to be and, and, and thanking Jennifer and saying that's because of you. I mean, 
Because imagine Jones, like, the first few times she met Jennifer, and she finds out, like, she's the one who's going to raise your kid. Like, (laughs) what? Yeah. The last person I would leave my kid with. (laughs) I mean, the other thing that I, I, I kind of clocked is, like, you know, I think when she got into the chair and she said goodbye, I mean, it was definitely, like, a... You know, I'm I'm like crying, but I'm also smiling moment. But like they also kind of kept their powder dry because she has another goodbye. She has another scene with Cole coming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> where, right? And so like it's all calibrated and it definitely is like calibrated for the character and the relationships and like what Jennifer has to go do is decades of of being an actress, right? Like especially with them. But um, it definitely is kind of setting up how emotional, at least I find that final scene between her and Cole. The final look between her and Cole, though, man, oof, yeah. it makes me cry. It's just, there's a lot. I mean, you know, the fact that that was their last day filming on that set, <laughs> I'm sure. Like, there's just a lot of it, everybody brought their fucking A game acting in those scenes. Like, I don't have a dry eye for any of those goodbyes. Like, I'm not sure is. they were acting. I think they just memorized lines. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. Um, so then Jenna, but I mean, I love that, you know, is in that moment, she still has like her unicorn in her backpack. She's still like thrilling at being sent through the machine, you know, like she's still. Does she tell it like you're going to love this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, th- that little unicorn is like such a great little like reminder of what we're going to see at the end. Um, then, uh, then there's that like fucking low like cello note <laughs> and Cole starts to hand the watch over and I like it, it I like crawled up it, the first time that I watched that I I was actually in the fetal position like I do not want this and I don't want to watch this and all of this is like too much I I feel like this goodbye is another like for a show that kept the romance pretty close to the vest this is and you know this is appropriate right like this is these these two people saying goodbye to one another i just feel like this is another like casablanca level of angst <laughs> in a goodbye and i love it but it also like really hurts i think this is like beautifully acted but i also love how this goodbye is like the culmination of these of these conversations they've been having about sort of like you know the fundamental truth about which Cole says is that like Cassie did have a really good life and he showed up in the backseat of her car and like her life was never the same. And his guilt over that is something that he has, ex- he expressed um, in the 1940s episode where they were arguing um, the fireside scene in lullaby when he's basically like the only world I gave a damn about is one with you in it. And is basically like, I'm doing this with you for you um, to give you your life back. And, and that was always this like thing between them, right? Like he felt guilt for it about it. And she was like, no, I, yes, that happened, but I also like made my own choices along the way. Right. Um, so I love that at the end of this, like, you know, huge stakes in saving the world, this goodbye takes it back to like one of the other personal motivations that Cole had, right? Like this is a Cole who has held Cassie in his arms dying. 
This is a coal who like, you know, that's the moment when the, the stakes of this plague became not just about like redemption, but like intensely personal. And, you know, he like, he kind of, when he's like, I was already in love with you and I saw you in the car, like we now know that he was watching tapes of her before he ever like splintered back. Right. Um, And then that like, that what he wants to give back to her is to heal again and, you know, to, to have, to be able to like show your face in the sun. And now I can't help but think of what we see in the epilogue, right. Of like Cassie is a doctor again, healing like with a child or like Cassie on her front porch. Right. Like um, it's just this, like the personal layer to what he was trying to do and the guilt that he felt for the impact he had on her life and what he says to her in this moment. I, I think there were a lot of ways that you could have gone with this goodbye. And I think it is sweeping and romantic and it's a really good kiss and the music is amazing and like the acting is wonderful. But I think bringing that back to how their journey began and the guilt that he always felt for it, but now he gets to make it up to her. Um, and why that's okay that he has to go get in that chair and erase himself. Like, I just, I'm like a fucking mess every time I watch it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that it was important. They could have made that, like you said, they really could have made that, that goodbye and that moment. One of those like really cheesy goodbye kiss things. And like, I love you. I love you too. And then off, you know, go into oblivion. But the fact that they did circle back and, and bring, his guilt over how he felt like he ruined her life. Like you had this, you were on the right track. You were living this great life. And then I came in and blew it up and then, and then sucked you into this whole thing. So I like that they made this bittersweet because they tied in their character arcs into this, this relationship and this goodbye between them. This both that, I love you and we've lived this life together and I love the life that we got to live together. But you know, this has to end sort of thing. But the fact that, that deep down at that moment, Cole's almost in a sense, it's like Cole still feels like maybe he doesn't deserve her. And that is kind of gives him this weird strength to, to feel like him, you know, deleting himself from the timeline. It gives him the strength to do that because knowing that like, I've loved you and now you can go and live this, this wonderful life. Um, and so he almost feels like he's, he, you know, he's giving her a chance again. Yeah. So it's not, I don't think it's as sad for him in that sense because of his guilt that it is for Cassie when she's saying goodbye and the fact that she says, I love you um, and, and all of that. For the first time ever in the series. Right. <laughs> Like, way to save that for right when it would really <laughs> hurt. <laughs> right when you gotta go. Um, yeah, I mean the whole the whole way that these like Cassie's the one that's kind of falling apart, and he's the one who's putting on the brave face so that she can have the strength to go and do what she needs to do. You know, like. And the fucking like single tear as she splinters away with the music. I'm just like, oh my God, you assholes. <laughs> I'm like sobbing. <laughs> like I do uh, feel honestly, like you like so Jennifer has to live the longest, you know, living through her timeline, but I feel the worst for Cassie just because Yeah. yeah. You know how how painful 
that is going to be, you know, yeah, like because this is like goodbye, but it's not really goodbye. I mean, she could change her mind at any time and stop doing this shit, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then she just has to keep going. And like, then also she has to go back to the plague, like, to the plague, to try to like fight a plague that she knows she can't beat. You and know, she like, started. She started. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, I mean, she really gets the shit end of the stick. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, it's funny, Aaron, you, I think you were on for that episode where we talked about the CDC. I mean. Oh, yeah. So if people really want, and I know that the timeline shifted in season two. And so it's it's not going to quite happen as, as we saw it in season one, but but that is Cassie with a white streak, right? That is a Cassie that has reached the end of the cycle. Um, and the way, like the way she um when you go back and watch 109, um Cassie, like that's when Cole was supposed to have died in Chechnya. Mm-hmm. And he says to her something about um about being erased the way she kind of like reacts to the, the concept of Cole being erased is like fucking a feels like avalanche when you go back and rewatch the scene, like to think that that's this Cassie from that we're watching right now has to go, has to see Cole again after years and have to like, give him just a little bit to tell him you're going to find the answers you're looking for and say to him, like, you know, see you soon. It's just like, oh, if people haven't gone back and rewatched that scene, you have to go back to 109 and watch that scene. Um, The only other thing to cover sort of from that was um, they have sort of this master stroke of as she splinters away, hearing what her complete message was. And of course she's giving this message, like we're hearing a Cassie who has gone back after this moment and is knows the message is going to be incomplete, but is just sort of like, almost like writing in a journal, like at the end when she's writing to Cole, she's still like kind of just speaking it out into the universe. And the part, the parts that are missing, um, like we didn't hear in season one that she was addressing Jones Obviously, um, Leland Goins' name, like the, the Goins got dropped out and it's security designation Frost. Um, it dropped out, but we are the true architects of the plague. The army of the 12 monkeys that gets added in is watching me. I'm running out of time. It adds in the answer is among you. And then where it said before, please call, it's remember death can be undone, love cannot. And like, that what a way to close a loop on a clue that was from season one, but deliver it to the audience in a moment where it will make the absolute maximum emotional impact. Like it's just, it's pretty masterful. And of course, Lillian had passed that message along to Cole back in the season two finale. Um, and it turns out that that was from Cassie's words to him. Let's go to Jones. It's fitting, like, it's so fitting that this comes down to to Jones and Cole in a room alone together, isn't it? Oh, yes. Starts with them and it ends with them. Yeah. Um, I had meant to point out all of the times that um, the the series finale put 
primary code one version 1.0 on the screen, they showed it to us at least three or four times. <laughs> so, um, but you know, you go to the commercial break with 1.0 and you come right back and it's 1.1. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me your feelings of about their one last smoke together. Dude, like, how I did many times can you lose your mom? <laughs> how many times? Yeah, that's true. He's like in the middle of a speech about how he, you know, she was another mother. And then I did appreciate that they explained where she got her cigarettes because I always wondered about that too. So that was very much a little like, you know, like one of those things, it's like not make or break, but it's like one of those little things I always in the back of my mind, then be like, oh, well, I guess I'll, you know, just... It's like suspend my disbelief. So it was actually kind of like almost embarrassingly satisfying to have that explained in the end. Right? It's it's seriously one of those things that just it it honestly didn't need to be explained because like especially in a sci-fi like show, it's just like, oh yeah, like that kind of random bullshit happens all the time. Of course she has an endless supply of cigarettes. Like, no worries. Like it's a sci-fi movie about I like series about time travel like i can suspend disbelief that jones has an endless pack of cigarettes so it was like that yeah that odd satisfaction of oh holy shit they gave an explanation for that like yeah wow they (laughs) they really are answering all the fucking questions (laughs) i love that they bring it back around to the promise um and if you think about what he's about to do he's about to do the final splinter And as he and Jones watched the first splinter together um, in 402, and she asked him, you know, to promise to finish this journey. And he said, I promise. And that is what she's thanking him for right now. Um, It's just, you know, like the, all of the ways that things come full circle, not only plot wise, but also like between these two characters that went on such a journey, (laughs) you know, like, Colin Jones had a real like up and down journey, but at the end when he says, you know, I had two mothers, that smile on her face, um, you know, for the woman that we saw in Paradox or was talking to Elliot Jones earlier in season four about how uncomfortable she was with the idea of being a mother. And here she was already acting like one to Cole just organically, you know, b- before, you know, when he says that, it's not really, I mean, of course she's his grandmother, but that's about their relationship, which was just organically came to be between the two of them, you know? I mean, that's the beautiful thing about that too, is the fact that so much of her arc started with trying to save her daughter and, And in the end, through the process of trying to save her daughter, she ends up essentially kind of raising her grandson (laughs) as a son in the process and not even knowing that, but doing it organically, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she collects a whole family along the way, some of it biological, some of it not, which is what she said at the beginning of the season, you know, that you all are my family. So it's also just, you know, she held on until the last thing she had to do was done. And her last act, you know, we'll see her smile later. They don't reveal it here. Um, her last act before she gives out um, is saving Cole's life and, and, and doesn't tell him, you know, like she's sitting mm-hmm. there the whole time during the scene, 
knowing what he's about to do and says, you know, keeps the, keeps the cards close to her chest. Like it's pretty, um, that's just sort of like an added layer when you go back and watch it. It's Um, very Jones though. Like that's, that's very her. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since she can't be sure it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, because time fucks with it. Like we, we've already discussed (laughs) like time's the one that's just like, yeah, we'll give it to you. She said time, like, check yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty please. (laughs) Time gave her the, time's going to give her the B (laughs) minus. That takes us to the final splinter. I thought it was, I knew that this should have been intuitive, but I thought it was fascinating on the last pod when, um, Terry Metalis and Drew Nichols and Stephen Barton were on, how they were talking about that they really wanted to sell that this was the end um, for Cole. And like, did you guys all believe it was? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 100%. For sure. Um, Here, I, okay. Right now I did for sure. I think you ask again, though, after the epilogue, like if we thought that was the end, like of the episode, you know? Yeah, the only thing that threw me off was just literally, you know, we live in the actual world and TV's shows are on for a certain time. Mm-hmm. And based on what time it was, I was like, what the hell just happened? Is it because it's like two parts? There are going to be more commercials? Like, like it caught me because of the time. If not, I would have believed that oh, this yeah. was all the end. Like you were, wa- you were watching it live, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because yeah. like streaming and I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I, I couldn't see the, you know, the like, um, Right, right. Percent done or whatever. So yeah, so yeah. Without okay. that context clue. Yeah. Right. I mean, I did honestly, like I did clock the time while I was watching it, you know, where I was just like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We still have time left. But I wasn't thinking it of it in a sense that I would see Cole again. I was mm. thinking it more in a sense like, oh, we're gonna see what happened now that Cole is gone and time resets. Right, and that's, that's what I of, mean. I'm actually yeah. referencing because I know later in the outline, I'm refer- referencing after the um, epilogue. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. yes, I believe this was his end because I believe that was the end. If that yeah, like I believe yeah, yeah. that was it for that was we that was the last time we saw Cole and that was yes. beautiful. Yes, and yeah. and to me too, like I was satisfied. I was satisfied with that. And then just having an epilogue, I was totally 100% satisfied with Cole's journey at that point. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was extremely bittersweet. It's not a great ending for him personally, but yeah, I mean, right. I knowing mean, what yeah. we knew as the audience, like in, in our kind of omniscience that of course we're not going to forget him. And I, I thought it was a beautiful story. Right. I mean, I think yeah. I was, I was holding on at that point, just hoping that in a, in a, when time was reset, that they would remember him, you know, like, I, I think after this final splinter scene, I, I, that's the happy ending I was hoping for. <laughs> you right. know, just, that had happened every time they changed, you know, everything, excuse me, anytime they shifted time before the people who were a part of it remembered it. So yeah, that was like yeah. such a possibility, I feel like, but that was like, you yeah. said, like that was kind of the most that you would hope for out of the logic that we'd been given up to this point. Yeah. I mean, the way they film it, um, you have like the music is super foreboding at the beginning. And there's this like shot of the chair and the chair has never looked so um, foreboding before, if that makes sense. Like there's something about 
the the like camera angle and the music that I'm like, wow, you just took something that is um, like the iconic image of the show and something that's always been like kind of wondrous, right? Like this time machine. And instead it's now like an instrument of Cole's annihilation. <laughs> like you're like, it's right there. You're staring at it. And it like, it made it seem, it made it to me feel really big for lack of a better word. Like it seemed very imposing and large mm-hmm. versus other times it was, it was almost like it, it was just a tool and it was in the background but for the scenes where it's just Cole and then knowing he's got to go in the chair and all alone, it felt like another person. It felt like a presence. And so that's why it almost makes sense later on when you're like, oh, time is like another character in the show. Um, that was a moment where you felt it um, because the chair and the splintering itself actually felt like another presence there. Like Cole was alone, but yet again, didn't feel alone at least to me when I'm watching it in that moment because the chair the the time machine itself felt like this is another character we're also saying goodbye to that's that's a huge part of the entire process yeah um I love the moment when he picks up Jones's glasses um the the like it's funny because I feel like you know a, a lot of folks that have I mean there's a lot of wonderful characters obviously on this show um the reason why Cole, it's this moment that is why he's my favorite character on this show. And I talked a little bit about that scene in the night room when he talks about why he has been doing all of this. But the sort of like the way these goodbyes unfold of sort of stripping away every person one by one who are all of the people that he gained along the way, you know? Like sort of the tragedy of of this James Cole is that he was so willing and and quick to want to shoot Leland Goins in the pilot because he was just so ready to like press that reset and get this done, right? Like press the butt, like pull the trigger, redemption done, I'm erased, right? And I'm reset and I'll I, I get a do-over to try and live my life. And instead, the journey of this show is that redemption isn't achieved through like a magical reset of pulling one trigger. It is all of the things, all of the sacrifices, all of the times that he didn't give up all along the way, all the while building these relationships and and this family, right? Like not just Cassie, but like finding his mother, Jones, Jennifer, like all of the people along the way, he loses all of them. And then our like chosen one that's not the chosen one has to press a button to obliterate his existence by himself. And he gets in there and he does it. Like, I know that Cole wouldn't have made any other choice, but I don't think all people would make that same choice. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. there's no way Cole was going to do it, was going to not do it at that point, right? Like, he gets to yeah. do what he set out to do, but not all human beings would do that in that situation. Um, no, I mean, I, they defeated Olivia. He could just literally walk away, <laughs> go live a life. I mean, I don't know what kind of life, but he could. I, I love that you have this journey of, of redemption that started out with a character who had nothing to lose and just wanted to press a reset. And instead 
Yes, it's this moment that he gets in the chair, but it's all of the things that he did along the way, which is why time owes him, right? Um, you know, and it's just really like, even if the story had ended here, it's still a really moving, like utter, utter self-sacrifice, like in every way. You're sacrificing your existence. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much my like love letter of why I love James Cole. In addition, well, to, and I in addition to leather beauty, jackets, <laughs> I think the beauty of it too, and why it wouldn't have bothered me if this was, you know, the last that we saw of James Cole is like, even though it was hard, all the things that he gave up and all the the journey along the way, he also did. There was beauty in there. There was he loved. He had family. He had a brother. He he did have like his mother and and his his father and all these things and and he found cassie like he he led a life like he he did actually lead this beautiful life that sure it had its hardships but it also had love and it had all the other things that we all go through when we live our lives so that's why i would have been completely at peace with that being the end of it and not feel like, Oh, poor James Cole. He didn't, you know, really get to live anything, but he did. He did get to live a lot of beautiful things in that moment. And having then that be like this ultimate sacrifice to give that love back to everyone who loved him. I don't know. I I would have been happy. I'm, I'm glad that it ended the way that it did. Like, I'm not saying that I wish it ended this way, but if it ended this way, I still would have been, talking about this finale as being one of the best things I've seen on television. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. That takes us to the epilogue or how I like to think of it. The time Terry Metellus made us nostalgic for a carjacking. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One thing that's really fun to do is um, actually just scratch that. If, if you, one thing that is fun to do is if you are, um, and probably if you're still listening to us, a diehard fan of the show, open up two windows and watch that first scene of Cassie speaking at the conference, which hits a little bit differently now about preparedness in a pandemic. Doesn't it guys? Like (laughs) Jesus. Um, Not about if. (laughs) Oh man. Um, Anyway, but open up one screen and then open up, um, the pilot and watch the differences between like what like, the first time Cassie went through this night and on the reset. And one of the things that is like freaking hilarious is she is significantly less enthusiastic about banging Aaron Marker in a cabin. Like the, <laughs> like, <laughs> the pilot is all like, Oh, I'm going to make it up to you in the cabin and da da da. And like reset, reset Cassie. Definitely not, not as into banging Aaron Marker. <laughs> This time her deep down that already remembers how much he sucks. <laughs> I mean, you can draw oh, whatever Aaron marker. You can draw whatever conclusions about Cole and Aaron Marker. What, what you there are a lot of conclusions you can draw from that. But like it just cracked me up because I forgot that there was like all this sexy talk on the way to her going to get carjacked, and it's all gone. What happened to Aaron Marker? It's her boyfriend. I mean, yeah. he's her boyfriend. He's no, I, said I wonder what happened to him, though, like after that in the reset. Oh, she must break up with him. Yeah. No, yeah. they're still together. It's a whole thing. Come on. Of course. She <laughs> 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 he's like, no, they've decided like, to be poly, and um, <laughs> it's now three of them living together. 
I did read a fanfic of um, Cassie breaking up with Aaron Marker in the reset. And I got to tell you, it was like really satisfying. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm a she little didn't get sad to break cause... up with him before because he just burned to death. How boring. <laughs> <laughs> you really I, was hoping, I was hoping you were going to say you read a fanfic that was like a threesome with them. And I would have been much happier about that. But I don't want to read that particular threesome at all yeah <laughs> but, no you say that now <laughs> all right um this this whole epilogue is a lot um the way they kind of take us through it's like the first half of it is this gut punch because at least for me it's not only that like Cole isn't there. It's also like the journey we went on as an audience with these characters is gone. Yeah, everything. I mean, this the series, uh, right, as we know it right this moment, the series is undone. Right. And there's so, something like, although that was always the goal, there's something very, very gut wrenching about that. Right. Does does that does that does that mean Caleb Man is undone? Is that what you're telling me? The power you're telling me. Be- I'm so- is Tom Noonan gone? <laughs> is he gone? <laughs> I'm sorry, Amy. Yes, I because that Tom Noonan is gone. His mantis because- wouldn't exist. He was born of time travel. He was totally erased. Time didn't so- owe him shit. He didn't get spit out for anybody. <laughs> time no. didn't owe him shit. Time. <laughs> Maybe time, o- maybe time, time o- collecting, baby girl. <laughs> maybe time owed you, Amy, to bring back your your interesting I crush. true love. <laughs> <laughs> um, like it takes you through this like gut wrenching, right? It's the back of the car. It's Emerson Hotel. Cat, you see Cassie be like, "Wait, six oh seven, right?" It just is like gut wrenching. Um, but then what? Then and the music kind of like takes you on this journey. Um, you know, she's writing in her journal and she's writing to Cole, and and that is something that we saw her do the last time she was sort of like marooned without him in the 1950s in Blood Washed Away. And you know, I love that, like, you know, obviously she's gone back to being, you know, she's a doctor again. All of the things that Cole said he wanted for her have come true. Um, and sort of the like, if there's a future, it's because of you and because of them. And it like goes through all of these characters that we have loved. Like, and, you know, first up, Jennifer, as CEO of Markridge. <laughs> she's kept her promise as she told Cassie in one in uh one thirteen. I'm not a liar, and she is bioengineered a unicorn. And then the subheading is scientific community asks why. <laughs> <laughs> that is hands down my favorite uh, <laughs> new timeline moment. <laughs> Jennifer living her best life. <laughs> yeah. And it's cool that it harkens back to to the fact, like, you know, let's let's erase, if we will, crazy Jennifer. Like, she's brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying she did that on her own, but like this is a brilliant <laughs> woman. She was a scientist. Like, this is she's not just like, you know, the the comic fodder. I mean, she's really good at that. Right. But there's more. She's to a her. whole package. 
package. Yeah. And also <laughs> next year, the Dodo, you know, I mean, she's, she's going for it. She's going to bring it back. I mean, the other thing that I loved is that, um, that moment with, with the unicorn where she looks at the camera and it's Cassie and it's like, she's looking through the television, right? Maybe, you know, yeah. hoping Cassie's watching this, you know, that, that is, that's their inside joke, right? Like, you know, it goes back to season one of Cassie being like, so you're really going to buy engineer like a, you know, a unicorn. She's like, well, I'm not a liar. I'm not a right? liar. <laughs> right. And it's like, they're, you know, this like, Going all the way back that to then, and and you know that was when their relationship was not was um, not great, not great, and you know that's that bitch. That's where <laughs> that's yeah, where we started. That's right. Lasky still annoying Adler playing chess. Um, if you think back to season three, Ramsey and Sam, and how we thought that story ended to see Ramsey and Sam again playing Go. Um, the saw the the game that he first taught him in season one um, at Project Spearhead. Like that's just a really beautiful ending for him. Real quick, I have a I have feelings about Lasky. Like that son of a bitch, he dies in every timeline. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Like he's just sitting there not dying. Like that's <laughs> well, they cut away right before he. That is over true. From true. He got aneurysm. Like, yeah, or like a sniper, like just a random. I mean, they are in America, so it is true. I bet that kind of ending the Reddit asshole would have really loved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would have been that would have been the Reddit post to be like, I just really love how this show like stuck to its guns and killed Lasky off again. Like that's the okay, joke. So, so Ramsey like their version of like uh South Park's Kenny. Yeah, exactly. I have a question about how these people come together. So like Jennifer, old Jennifer, this is Jennifer. So she knows, right? Like she, she remembers yeah, these, everything. Yeah. Everyone remembers. So if it wasn't okay. every, uh, 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 what the writers who have come on have said is everyone eventually remembers everything. Like the characters okay. we're seeing remember. Yeah. Okay. It's just a All process right. for them. Okay, Just like it. it is for Cassie working it out through this, you know, through this epilogue. Yeah. Okay. She's like kind of piecing things together, kind of not like she remembers Cole, but then, you know, all the way up to the end of her monologue, she's like, and then there's this other thing I say for some reason, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so old Jennifer, of course, remembers everything, but then Deacon eventually remembers who she was is. Yeah. Um, do you think, okay. So here's my question about Ramsey and Sam. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he has Sam because eventually he's drawn back to Elena? Elena. Yes. And they eventually, okay. Yeah. So that's how he winds up having the same child. Right. right. Because some things are faded. Yeah. Right. Okay. But like, that's my question, I guess. is like, are some things faded, like truly faded, like no matter what, you know, that would, or is it that. When did he remember? <laughs> yeah, or or, the, you know, or is it like they're, yeah. they're drawn back together because even before they consciously remember, like the vestiges of the memories, you know, like they meet and they feel like I've known you my whole life. And like what they don't realize is that it's like the vestigial memories of another. literally another life. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's so much there's so much potential, like, the, you know, the last five minutes of this series have so much story. 
and so much story potential, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, what? how did all of these characters find one another again? When did they start remembering? What did it trigger? Um, were they, like you saying, Aaron, were they drawn to one another? Because, you know, like, for example, Elena and, and Ramsey were always going to be drawn to one another or because there's that deja vu, I know you. Like, you know, it's fascinating um, to think about how this like all unfolded. Yeah. Um, two of the things that are missing, um, just before we get to the, the, the Jones family reunion, on the bonus scenes, um, Whitley did become an architect and Agent Gale became director of the FBI. Aw, that's yeah. yeah, they did. <laughs> I love yeah. Agent Gale. We could sure use fucking Agent Gale as director yeah, of the did. FBI right now. <laughs> um Tell me, <coughs> tell me your feelings about you see Jones, you see Elliot Jones, and then you see Hannah again. It made me really happy. Um, it also made me wonder what Jones was writing in that journal. Cause like mm-hmm. I could see a whole other spinoff show where Jones invents something else that completely fucks shit up. Yep. Yep. Jones <laughs> yeah. is being no. sneaky. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I think the implication is that she remembers you like she absolutely like yeah. she's plugged in. She knows. But then like, also, it's like it's Jones, you know, like just because she isn't going to invent time travel or she thinks about it and then she's like, not nah, been there, done that. Like, she's going to do something else. So like, there's always a part of me that's just sort of like, what are you plotting, Jones? Yeah, she's very, <laughs> it was very like pinky in the brain. I feel yeah. Like. yeah, I bring back dinosaurs. There the you go. Jennifer. And then and it's going to be the start of Jurassic Park. And obviously, she 100% and watch a spinoff series or like a movie or something where Jones like invents something new that fucks shit up and they have to get the band back together in this oh, new yeah. timeline. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, like when. Uh, what was it like? When we were all watching the finale. Tara Metalis teased that, like that scene of Ramsey and Sam at the Emerson, is like uh, a clue's not the right word, but like t- what he said on the last podcast is like think about that time. Like you've got those characters existing at that point, then you've got Jones and oh, young Jennifer and Cole and Cassie, right? Like uh, uh, 20, 20 years before, really. Right. I guess like uh, yeah. There's so much potential. It, it at least is like, I mean, I think we got to like uh, roll our sleeves up and this show deserves a lot more fan fiction than is currently out there um, because like <laughs> all of the potential for all of these characters coming back together. Um, I think the Jones family, I don't know what Elliot and Katarina have been up to, but like, it seems like they did pretty financially well for themselves. Uh, yeah. Like they've been, um, they've been like selling some patents for... <laughs> Working in like for like the pharmaceutical industry, I don't know. They're making <laughs> bank. <laughs> um, I you know seeing that family put back together, and if you think back at, to Legacy and Elliot Jones, you know the sort of ships passing in the night reasons that they broke up and their marriage ended, and then seeing them all together, you know, and that all he wanted was this daughter and, and they're all to get like, it's just really um, 
beautiful if you think back to sort of all that we learned during Legacy and to see them all put back together again. Um, and just to see Hannah's face again after we <laughs> lost her two episodes Oh my God. Ago. And she's just like a different person, just chilling. She's like jeans and a flannel and she's just like yeah. this happy person. And you're like, wow, like yeah, but I talk think- about circumstantial, you know? <laughs> Ooh. Is the the card game that she's playing? I think it's War, isn't it? Oh, uh, it looks more like Slapjack or something. Are oh, they maybe like hitting it. Yeah, I do love that she's she and her father are playing such like an aggressively competitive game. Because oh, yeah. that feels yeah, yeah, very yeah. very in character for that family. Right. And she's she's not a daughter anymore, but she's still going to kick her dad's ass. At <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really want to believe, like. I want to believe that Jennifer is in all of their lives. Like Jennifer is like the one. Yes. Yeah. You know, who that's weaving in and out. Yeah. Like that she, you know, like we see her in Deacon's bar, but that like, she's like a family friend of the Joneses and she, you know, goes and visits Cassie and Cole and, and, you know, that she like hangs around the park by the chessboard near Lasky and uh, Adler. (laughs) Yeah, and every now and then she tells one of them what the other one's gonna do. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> my um, I like I was gonna save this for the end, but like my um, thanks like Team Splinter Thanksgiving headcanon when you bring all of these characters together, but they're like all different ages. Like I think Jennifer absolutely insists that everybody play like charades or celebrity after dinner uh-huh. and jones is like so fucking annoyed and <laughs> um and that and yet, really good at it <laughs> yeah. yes and then yeah she hates it but she is going to be the best oh hell yeah <laughs> um and that uh that kid kid deacon and kid ramsey are always fucking fighting and cole has to constantly put them in time out um <laughs> Um, we know that oh. Cassie one hundred percent burns the turkey because we already saw that in the in the deleted scene. Deleted, yeah. <laughs> you know Sorry. what? You know what? Okay, so hang on. Yeah. What is Deacon's age relative to Cassie? He was a kid when she was an adult, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. He, Ramsey, and Cole are more in that same range. Now we don't know exactly how old he is, but like he was a kid you know, maybe young teenager when the plague started. So that's where they're back at now. Like Cassie's in like 2016 ish. That's right. Okay. I really want to believe that somebody got Deacon and his brother out of their father's house. Yes. Like Jennifer or Cassie, somebody called child protective services. Yeah. Got them out of that house and took them. I took them. I want to believe that it was Jennifer. Yep. If I was yep. going to say, if it's my head cannon, it's got to, it absolutely 100% is going to be Jennifer, especially because remember like Jennifer and her family situation. And then Deacon was the one that said those kind words to little girl, yeah. Jennifer, yeah. like, so to me for it to come full circle for yes. Jennifer to be the one that saves like little kid Deacon out of the yes. shitty environment. Okay, so, so Jennifer switched from the daughters to the sons and she raised the, the uh, Deacon the boys. The sons, yeah. And, big, and, and, big, and, and big Jennifer. And I'm going to take... I'm going to take her presence in the Deacon, in, in the boys' bar, the family bar, as, like, confirmation of this headcanon. Yeah, absolutely. She's their mom. Yeah. She's their mom. Mm-hmm. 
And she, I mean, and she also like as adult Jennifer turned to Kid Deacon and said, "Your dad's an asshole." Yep. Yes. yes. Don't you gave him what he it. gave her? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. This all happened. Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. I do. I do want to give a shout out. Uh, um, one of the like wonderful layers to that Brothers Deacon bar scene is that Jeff Scoville, who is the uh, future asshole Cole's stunt double for the entire series is playing Deacon's long lost brother. Who's, you know, restored in this timeline. Um, and so it's, it's the stunt double who always um, like doing the stunt work in that bar fight. It's just so. Yeah. Cause they always, up. Deacon always made the comment about how he looked like his brother. So they used <laughs> that just brings us back to the house of cedar and pine and you know it's funny aaron when you were on in season one we talked about all of the different um permutations of the house of cedar and pine and, and at different stages of the story what it represented to cassie from you know being kidnapped and this like horrific vision to a place of like you know love and and finding like peace and a life with Cole to then being representative of everything she had lost. Um, and then potentially also being her temptation um, for her perfect moment. And so in the reset, she, you know, is drawn, she's still drawn to it. And, you know, it's clear Cassie doesn't quite remember all of the reasons why um, that maybe she's like, I think she understands some important things, but she also doesn't remember like why a sunset. Um, like, why does she say see you soon to a sunset? Which means she probably doesn't remember the proposal, right? Like, so I just think it's interesting that she's she's drawn to this place. And in the final place that we see it, because everyone on here chooses to believe that what we're seeing is real um, and not the red forest, is that the house of cedar and pine, she claims it. And she claims it as her refuge, her home. And I just think that that's really like what that house is sim symbolized and like what the final, what it finally means to her in the end is just like, I don't know, it's like so healing for her and also kind of like she's claiming it for herself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. She She finally has full agency in her life and she has you know unknowingly in a lot of ways just embraced something that good bad indifferent every reason is just hugely important to her journey and she made her way back to it um can i tell you a really really fun nugget that i just discovered when i rewatched it this last time if you pause on the real estate listing for the house of cedar and pine <clears throat> it says you know uh, you know, early farmhouse built in cedar and pine, later restored in 1959. Damn. Whoa. Bum, bum, bum. Whoa. <laughs> but it but it couldn't have been, right? <laughs> Not by them in no. 19. Right? But then again, I mean Terry brought up, you know, there there's like Redfin and Zillow in the Red Forest. <laughs> and so I don't see why there wouldn't be like renovators either, you know, that could have gotten maybe right okay. Here's here's my headcanon for that. It was Gail. Oh bum bum bum. I've known you for a long time, Cole. I mean, did it yep. did, what? <laughs> Gail? You know what though? I don't think Gail would remember because Gail never had the serum. 
No, yeah, probably not. I'm just. But but I do think Gail Gail wouldn't. So everybody who remembers the other timeline is because it had the serum. I don't actually. That's a really good question. Like, does Lask do Lasky and uh, they do they remember? Is it love? Can you know love can't be undone? Right. I mean, you know, the end of season two, we had. And we all know how much Gail loves Cole. I'm just saying. Like, I I would like to believe that Gail has some vestigial memories and was drawn to this house. And, and did some restoration work. Yeah. I mean, he did hear how much it meant to her in season three. Yeah. I like that headcanon. I don't, I, I'm going to go with it. It would have been very helpful if it said like previous owner had to relocate for FBI job. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> previous owner became the head of the FBI, which is like so huge because like, I feel like Gail, even, even before Cole came, like he was on track to be the Fox Mulder of this TV universe. Like, Oh, 100%. He was like yeah. the outcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, he was a by, you know, like when we first met him, he was absolutely a by the book agent, right? And then this ruined, like, ruined his career. Um, and he was kind of like a laughing stock among his colleagues. So it's, you know, even that attention to detail that like Cassie is scrolling through and sees Agent Gale dies at age 81, former director of the FBI. Like, it's just, Ugh, like it's awesome. Um, like even Agent Gale gets his due. <laughs> you know, like um that, you know, that that final I, I don't even I don't even want to paraphrase it, but that final moment on the porch where Cassie is talking about like once in another lifetime, and you know, for a reason that I that I can't quite remember. There's a thing I say to the sunset. It, it, the writing is just so, the writing is beautiful. The music is beautiful. When she says, see you soon, it like absolutely breaks me. I did also notice, um, it's interesting to me, because I always kind of like, especially in the early seasons with, you know, like the talk of primaries and um, Red Forest and, you know, what does Jennifer say? Give me yellow, I can paint you the world. Yeah. So there's always been a kind of like play with primary colors through the show. And at a sort of certain key moments, you know, certain characters are wearing those primary colors. Like Jennifer wears yellow a lot in the beginning. And in the first season, Cassie mostly wears blue. Um, And so the fact that she's wearing blue again, wearing that blue sweater at the end here at that, you know, the day that Cole shows up, it feels significant to me because yeah. blue is like, like blue, like in the first season, especially blue, I think feel like is the color of healing, you know? So like Cassie's always wearing blue. Red is the color of the red forest of the army of the 12 monkeys. Yellow is kind of like the primaries that's Jennifer, but blue is always Cassie and especially Cassie in that first season when she was like primarily a doctor and was like mm-hmm. focusing on sort of healing and fixing. So. Yeah, that's such a good point. The first image we see of Cassie at that conference is in that blue blouse. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And she's wearing a red coat when when Cole shows up to introduce her to time travel. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good... Oh my gosh, that's so right. She's wearing a red coat. That's so great. Um, I spent like the, my entire first rewatch just like keeping track of what color everyone was wearing at one moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She says, see you soon. You have sort of that last that last note. It goes to black. Anybody here question whether or not that was it? I thought it was it. I thought it was it. I totally I mean, thought it was it. I, yeah. That's what I was saying earlier. I watched live. So 
I think the only reason I questioned it is just because of literally what time it was. I was like, wait, is this is this over already? This that's that's not right. Right. So obviously we have um we start we see the images that we first saw in the 1960s episode after. Um, they cleverly played with those images in the proposal scene to kind of fake us out. I wanted to just read to you guys from the episode The Keys, the scene at the end of the episode where Cassie believes she's talking to a past version of Cole, knowing that he is already what she believes she's already that he's already died. She asks him, What do you think will happen when this is over? I know you say the future will be saved and you won't exist. What do you think happens to you? And Cole says, I don't know. I wind up a better me in a better place. Cassie, what is that? That place? What does it look like to you? And then Cole recalls that he was in foster care and they used to play a game of like, what exotic place would you go to? And then he trails off and he gets embarrassed and he doesn't finish it. But earlier in the episode, as he was like in the last final minutes before the explosion, what he tells her of is that he had a picture in a magazine of a beach and he tells her, it's the Keys. That's where I'd go. And then you have him waking up on a beach in the Keys. And like, guys, that was season one. <laughs> like, I don't even know. I feel like I've run out of adjectives. That is, that is fucking amazing like way to take something that they talked to us about in season one and then it manifests in a way that we could never possibly have imagined and is also so central to to like to Cole, right? And like his his dreams as a kid when he was like this kid in the apocalypse. Um and were you were you guys thinking that it was like some sort of afterlife? Yeah, kind of. I, you know, I, I sort of wondered if he would didn't, you know, go to something like heaven or whatever. I was a little surprised. I was like, wait a second. That seems like a little, like a step beyond. I, I mean, I guess maybe I thought like, like time rescued him and put him in eternity or something, but it's worth men- uh, noting, I guess that this is one of the few things, one of the few like holdovers from the movie mm-hmm. um, is the keys. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the- along with the message, which I think is also really interesting that the message that Jennifer leaves, um, which is left by, um so not jennifer cassandra leaves um and and in the movie you know that message is left by the character played by the actress who plays lillian but the movie's version of that is like so nihilistic i don't know if you guys Mm -hmm. watch the movie but like the movie is nihilistic (laughs) yeah no it's like it's literally like it's a like a loop that never ends you know and and so the keys thing is kind of this throwaway that's where he'd go but he never winds up there. And the message is sort of just like a joke that she leaves that doesn't mean anything. Um, so, you know, it's interesting all the ways, like the, the bits of the movie that they keep, but then they kind of like transform them to give them more meaning and weight rather than this kind of like, you know, sort of like circular nihilism. Right. I'm, <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it is the literal after life for coal, right? Yeah, it's, true, it's after, true. right? Um, in a way that isn't religious at all. It's just is his now life after the reset. Um, how 
you know, and then you have Jennifer, you know, almost kind of speaking to the audience as well as Cole. Well, it ain't heaven. <laughs> like as, as much to us as telling him. How does everyone feel about the fact that Jennifer knew exactly when he was going to show up and was there waiting for him with the pina colada? It's just Jennifer, um, dude. Yeah, it's, Jennifer. I was totally not surprised. Like, you nope. should be surprised, but wasn't because it's Jennifer. Right. Who else is going to be there? No, it's just yeah. Like, no, I mean it made perfect sense to me. Like, of course, I mean she's even reset timeline. She's still primary. Correct. I know. I yeah. know. I just love that. You know, like, can you picture Jennifer just so fucking giddy, waiting for him to yes. show up on that beach? <laughs> like, you know, um, she like that- so cool. She's like, "What's up?" <laughs> you know. <she's> like, <laughs> but then she jumps up like squealing. <laughs> She's like in resort wear. <laughs> yes. You know, like, it's like, I mean, it's a holiday, you know, it's like, <laughs> yay, Cole exists again. <laughs> um, you know, obviously then we get the, I love the music, save the one and the montage and all of the pieces of the puzzle um, coming together, leading up with, the the blinking eye that we first saw in season two when Jones drank the tea with old Jennifer. Um, the moment um, it's just kind of like exhilarating watching that all come together. Like, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's going to be okay. Like Jones figured this out. Right. And it's like so funny that we're totally cheering Jones on for like being that, you know, being Jones and like saving her one when, you know, maybe there were other points in the story where we didn't, maybe we judged her a little bit more um, for those, for those kinds of actions. Um, Tell me how you feel about James Cole telling Jennifer, you were the best of all of us. I sobbed uncontrollably. Uncontrollably. And I'm glad somebody finally like said that out loud. Because we all know it's true. (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing. This is another like father, like son moment because Ethan told her in the end of season three, you're not like me. You're better. You're going to be better. That's true. And then Cole came and just put that nail in the coffin. But to me, oddly enough, the, the part that landed even more with me, I mean, that was just like, okay, kill me. But him, (laughs) him leading with you were never crazy got yeah. to me yes. more than you yes. like yes holy crap yeah uh, acknowledge that woman's worth yes and and also you know as a kind of apology you know saying like what we labeled as mm, crazy yeah. was just our failure to understand you know to sort of like be able to accept and see you fully as you are yeah, also, it was it was it was like an apology, you know, for him and for the team and literally mm-hmm. for everybody and for her life of just mm-hmm. like it, I just felt like it was such a moment of just like I see you. I see who you yes. are and I love you because you're that person. Yes. And uh, actually something occurred to me about the whole time code spitting coal out thing cuz okay. So Jennifer said, old Jennifer when they were sort of explaining primaries Jennifer said that primaries help time think, right? Correct. So there's sort of time that just exists and primaries are what sort of give shape and structure to time or sort of give consciousness to time. In that case, it actually makes perfect sense that time would sort of say, yeah, you know what? Cole should get to exist 
And I do owe you because, because Jennifer is one of the thinkers for time. Right. Like it's, that's Jennifer's. That feels like that's Jennifer's input. Yeah. I wonder if they like get a vote. (laughs) (laughs) Or It's not even like a vote. It's just like, like she is part of like the consciousness of time. Yeah. So like she, so like what she, you know, who she loves and cares about and what she sort of like values and what she sees as being morally right would shape what time would be willing to do. Yeah. So I, I mean, although I feel like, I mean, they all, they all earned it, but I, I do feel like annihilating yourself earns you a wink from time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, 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 for sure. I yeah. mean, like, again, like, it's like, there's lots of primaries, so it's not like she is the only thinker and it's just Jennifer's decision. Yeah. But I know I just, I love this, you know, we have talked for um, a while now about this. <laughs> no, not just just not just right now, but this wonderful relationship between Jennifer and Cole that they are, um, depending on the stage of life or stage of the cycle they were in, that they were kind of like each other's mentors. And I love the idea that even in this reset. Um, Jennifer is there as his guide. You know, it's like mm-hmm. who she was always meant to be. Um, and there's certain things about them, you know, that are still true now, even in this reset. Um, and she waited years, right? Like Jennifer's primary, I kind of assumed that she probably remembered, if not you know, definitely like sooner than everybody and way more complete in terms of what she remembers. Think sure. about how long she waited for this moment. Like yeah. to, to see her friend again and to be able to tell him that he was that he was alive, right? And like the smile on his face is the biggest smile in all of 12 monkeys that James Cole ever smiled. <laughs> like it's so great. <laughs> um and I, you know what I also love about this is that like, you know, you had this chosen one who wasn't the chosen one who saved the day, right? But then his friends, his family, they like saved him right back. Yes. Um, Which is just kind of like, you know, in keeping with sort of the whole show that like nobody can do this, you know, even though there was one thing he had to do alone, nobody is truly alone sort of in the world of the show. Um, And then he only even knew that he needed to do it because so many people, even, even at the end, went back and pitched in. And I mean, you know, like we said, or Jennifer freaking decades of things that she had to go through just so that he could come to the point. It's not, I mean, he sacrificed, you know, literally all of existence, but these people were sacrificing left and right for him too. Right. Yeah. Um, that brings us to the biggest feels monster move. I think I've ever like a cute, the music cue of these arms of mine. And I, I don't know about you guys. I just fucking lost it at this moment. And when you I go was back- already sobbing. So at this point, I cannot <laughs> tell you like, what happened. <laughs> like it was just, and the thing is when you go back and rewatch that first opening scene of the pilot and these arms of mine are, is playing as you look out on a post-apocalyptic wasteland in the snow and, and it leads up to coal you know, saying, see you soon to, uh, while holding Cassie's watch um, 
in front of her corpse. And now these arms of mine is playing as the camera is panning over like the beautiful aqua water of the Florida Keys, the beautiful like leaves changing in the fall of like upstate New York. It's like the world is healed and is beautiful again. And it's like the same song, but the images are like so different and the opposite um, of what we saw in the pilot. And, you know, like the little sound that Cassie makes when he shows up in front of her house is like, just like, it's beautiful acting. There's no dialogue. It's just like, like they're not talking to each other, right? The last words that we ever saw them say to one another was that goodbye at the machine. Um, and then this like beautiful monologue that is, again, a callback to the pilot. Um, and Beep, you, I, I want you to talk about this because you, you pointed this out, the very first podcast that we did um, about sort of the difference between the two where are you right now monologues. Well, yeah, I mean, this is another thing I thought was great. It was when you go back, because I remember, you know, when a lot of us had watched the finale that it was just like, okay, let's kind of just go back. Because at that point, I didn't remember that that was how it started. I, I think a lot of people had kind of forgotten at least how much it was paralleled, you know, how much it was like exactly the same in a completely different context. But yeah, he says in the in the very beginning. Okay. So in the pilot, we've got these arms of mine playing over the snow-covered apocalypse. And he says, where are you right now? Somewhere safe, warm, next to someone you love? Now, what if all that was gone and the only thing you could do was survive? You would, right? You'd try. You'd do things, horrible things, until you lose the last thing that you have left, yourself. But what if you could take it back, all of it, a reset switch? You'd hit it, right? You'd have to. There you go. Stop with y'all's Red Forest stuff. That's it. It's like in the pilot. They told you from the very beginning of what they were going to do. <laughs> entire story right there. Don't even and, watch anything else. Uh, what, I, what I love about that where are you right now monologue in the pilot is absolutely what you just said, Beep. But that's also, that's James Cole in that pilot, right? I, I got I to gotta pull the trigger on Leland Goins and then it's a reset and then I get a second shot at, at like, you know, it's a reset, right? Yeah, because he's already lost the last thing he has left, which is himself. He's lost himself, and he knows that. And so, like, this is that shot at redemption. And Literal now shot, he's going to shoot that man. <laughs> right. And, and, <laughs> and now the finale monologue is, where are you right now? Somewhere safe, warm, next to someone you love? <laughs> Someday, all of that will be gone. Time passes as it's meant to. All that matters is now, happily ever now. And like this James Cole, who has just been restored next to someone he loves, his messages, that's what matters. Like that, those moments. And, and, and you know, that, that James Cole before was so worried about what had he done? What could he do? What could he change? And this one is like grasping the present like the present with both hands because he never thought that he would get it. And because of that, it's so precious to him. It's just, I don't know, man. Do you guys have anything else to say? <laughs> just We did it, man. <laughs> Oof. We did it. Oof. That was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Amy and Aaron, we I, I, I'm really glad that we got to do this with you guys. Um, you're two of my favorite people to listen to other than Beep talk about TV. So Aww, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have been asked to be on for the finale podcast. I feel like it's so it's like such a huge thing. And it really means a lot that you wanted wanted me and Amy here at this final for the final podcast that will ever podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the last one it's ever gonna be. That was very right. well worded. <laughs> what Aaron said, totally. Yeah. Well, right now I've been drinking and eating my Big Mac that um <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why they keep asking me on, but thank God they <laughs> This is to make up for the fact that I didn't get to do the Glocka. (laughs) 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 I said that because that was my favorite episode. But I am just, this has been such a fun ride. And you guys have been wonderful. And I'm so proud of what you've accomplished with this podcast. Aw, thank you. Are you eating a a cheeseburger right now? I'm eating a Big Mac right now. (sighs) So yes, in honor of, of Cole. Oh, I'm eating a cheeseburger. A hyena that. burger right now. Hyena burger. <laughs> um, well, it has been nearly two years discussing this show. Uh, we wanted to thank all of the people who crafted 12 Monkeys. Uh, a story like this doesn't come along often. The word doesn't seem sufficient, but it is truly special. And we hoped that we honored the story well. Um, and we wanted to thank especially everyone from behind the scenes who came to speak with us about it. It was truly the experience of a lifetime to get to discuss something we love so much with so many different people who helped to create it. And a special thanks in particular to Terry Metalis, who's truly the most generous showrunner out there. And anybody who came on this podcast, it's because, you know, he was he was the one sort of encouraging people to come on and helping us to do it. And we just, we appreciate everyone's support and and participation so much. Um, We also just wanted to thank all of the brilliant women, um, not only who joined us for this podcast, but for the last two years have taken time out of their lives to rewatch this show, um, write these beautiful different analyses of the show. all everyone who's been on your perspectives and your insight have were really what made this podcast something that Beep and I ended up being very proud of. And we're particularly proud that it that it put a lot of female voices out there in the world discussing genre stories. Um, and, and we're proud that we were able to do that. And we hope that we will be listening to more female voices out there talking about genre stories. And finally, thank you to the listeners. You all have listened to us talk about this show for well over a hundred hours. Um, <laughs> we never, we never expected that. We are humbled. We are grateful. This is a wonderful fandom. It's the kindest one I have ever participated in, and that that says a lot these days. And it's just so passionate and intelligent. We love hearing from you. We loved meeting you um, at cons. Um, we are we are grateful that you chose to spend your time with us. So I think it's time to give us an ending. See you soon. See you soon. <laughs>